0: Amen. Praise the Lord. I'm going to start in Genesis chapter 17 this evening. Genesis chapter 17 verse 1. I really don't have a message to to, uh, preach or teach so much. It's just some things that uh, the Lord's been reminding me of. Some things that he's brought to my remembrance that uh, we talked during a series of miracles uh, several years back. And um, so I just want to share some things as the Lord puts it on my heart and draws it out. Is that all right? Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, and when Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect. Now, let me give you a definition of perfect right off the bat. Perfect means wholehearted. He's not saying don't ever mess up. He's not telling that to, it wouldn't do any good for him to tell that to Abraham any more than it would do any good to tell it to us. Perfection is wholeheartedness. He's saying put me first and keep me first in your life. That's what he's saying. For us, that would mean give the word first place in our lives. But here in this uh, 17th chapter in the first verse, Abraham is nine years old and nine. That's 24 years after God first appeared to him and told him to follow him and obey him to, to own the land that he wanted him to to, uh, to go to, the promised land for him. And uh, he'd make him rich and give him children and so forth. 24 years have gone by. Abraham is now in the place... Where his body has ceased to function in that manner and so is his wife Sarah's. And so they're, they've got to be at their lowest point. And God does something new in this time that he appears to Abraham. He appeared to him a number of different times throughout his life. But this time he does something different. He gives himself a different name than he's ever used before with him. He says, I am the almighty God. Now in the Hebrew it means uh, the words that are used is El Shaddai which literally means the God that's more than enough. But he is talking to Abram at this point in Genesis chapter 17 on a different level than he ever has before. He tries to impress upon Abraham his unlimited power. Now, you may recall that just a few months later after the Lord appears to him again, the two angels have come down to execute judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And um, the Lord speaks to Abram, and, and uh, by that time, his name has changed to Abraham. He speaks to him about having children, and Sarah is listening in the tent somewhere. And you remember she laughs at what the, what the Lord has told him about having children this time next year, I believe is the phrase that's used in the Scripture. And, um, and the Lord brought it to uh, Abram's attention, and he said, why did Sarah laugh? And then he asked him this, and he said it for Sarah's benefit, I'm sure, just as much as Abraham's, because she's still listening, I guess. He said, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? In the last year, or Abraham's 99th year until he has this, he and Sarah have the son, uh, Isaac. In that last year, God talks to Abraham about possibilities more than anything else. And he's never done that before during his time walking with Abraham, Abraham's time walking with God. Never done that before. But now all of a sudden he starts talking about him being the almighty God. What well, if he's the God that's more than enough? That would make him the almighty God, wouldn't it? It's not a bad translation in any, any sense whatsoever. But God is saying he's more than enough. He's more than enough for whatever needs, needs doing, whatever you need. Now, it'd be real easy for us, and, uh, and we have done this, uh, limitedly in times past but um, uh, it'd be real easy for us to just talk about the miracles that God wrought and he did tons of them when Moses stretched forth his rod the Red Sea depart, uh, parted, divided Israel went over on dry ground and then their song of victory after it's all over they sing that the waters were congealed in the sea well there's only one way you can have congealed water one is ice and the other is jello I don't know which one it was. But he made the water stand up in a heap, the Bible talks about. And that wasn't the only time he did it either. He did that for the children of Israel when they went into the promised land under Joshua's leadership. The Jordan River divided for them to go over on dry ground. And it backed up for a long, long ways. It talks about uh, the name of the city that it backed up to. And that's about 50 miles away. So God has certainly been a miracle-working God in all of his dealings in interaction with man but there are a lot of things that we don't recognize um well i don't i these are things that i don't think about much and i think this is probably one reason the lord brought this to uh, my remembrance today the bible says in genesis Genesis 1 1 it says in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth verse 2 then tells us the earth found itself in a different state than what god created it to be god didn't make the earth without form and void but that's how it became Something caused that. My best guess is that that was the point in time when Satan was cast into the earth and he just created, he just ruined the place. But when the Bible says God created the heaven and the earth, there are some scientific facts that have become uh, known, at least in the scientific community. A lot of people don't know these things, I guess. And certainly not everybody studies up on this stuff. And I understand that. But there are certain truths about the earth and how it's created that helps me. Maybe it'll do the same for you, but it helps me to realize that God is the almighty God. It's so easy for us to get focused on our own situation, on our own lack, um, our own trouble, adversity, test that we're going through, whatever it is. It's so easy for us to start looking at that. And the more we look at our problems, the more we look at our circumstances, the smaller and smaller God gets. But God's not small. Scientific, uh, the, the scientific community tells us they've discovered certain things. In 1966, Carl Sagan, an astrophysicist, I think, I guess that would be his title, postulated, put the theory out there that there could be hundreds of other planets that would support human life. Well, he based his research on what was known then to be the two critical elements that a planet would need to be or have, two characteristics that it would need to have to support life uh, on that planet. One was the size of the planet, and the other was the distance from a star. Well, since uh, 1966, when he first came out with his idea about throughout the universe, there must be thousands... Of different um, planets that would support life human life they have found that there aren't just just two criteria there are over 150 and the 150 criteria that are necessary to support life create uh, just from the size of the universe that they know about they know there's a lot more that they can't see and they can't measure and they don't know how far it's going But it seems that when God said, let there be light and created the stars in the universe, he never told them to quit creating. And so the universe is ever expanding. It used to be that that hardly anybody believed in the Big Bang Theory about the earth being, uh, or the universe rather, being created from an explosion of power of some sort. But when they discovered what's called background radiation, that told them, that, that uh, power, force, whatever it was in the center of the universe that caused things to be is continually moving outward. So now everybody accepts the Big Bang Theory. Not everybody accepts what the Big Bang was. But everybody accepts and it's scientifically proven that the universe started from an explosion of some tremendous force. The reality of that simply means the scientific community has proven, just by statistical odds and probabilities, that the earth doesn't even exist to support human life. Because the, the, uh, the 150 criteria are so defined, they're so finite, they're so precise, that if you're just running the numbers, there shouldn't be any planet throughout the universe that could support life. We know a lot of things about the sun and the moon and so forth. We know that if we were closer to the sun, there'd be certain times of day that we would burn up. If we were further away from the sun, nighttime would be too cold to support life. We know of some of the the simplest things along those lines. But all the things, all the criteria, all the minute details that God had to take into account is covered in Genesis one one, where it says, "In in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth." Talk about a God that doesn't brag. In the beginning, He created the heaven and the earth. There were four. There are four specific physical forces that are necessary uh, and that exist on the earth. That certainly don't exist in any other planet uh, in the universe. One is gravitational force. We know what that is. That's what holds us to the planet. The other is electromagnetic force. That's what holds molecules together. The third of the four is weak nuclear force, which has to do with radioactive decay. And the fourth is strong nuclear force, which is the power that enables protons and electrons to surround a nucleus so that an atom can be formed or exist. Now, if the gravitational force and the electromagnetic force we're just one, if the ratio was just one to ten, to the 40th power, different than what it is. That would be a ten with 40 zeros behind it. When you get to talking about numbers like that, they don't even have names for them. If it was just that much different, then you couldn't sustain human life. The earth couldn't sustain human life. If the strong nuclear force had a ratio to the, electromagnetic force of just 1 to 10 to the 60th power that would be a 10 with 60 zeros behind it then life couldn't exist on the earth now here's the real thing that that blows my mind these four forces that deal with the earth and make the earth habitable gravitational force electromagnetic force weak nuclear force and strong nuclear force those forces had to have been created instantaneously following the Big Bang. Science has come to the understanding that if these forces, they couldn't have been put in place before the Big Bang. But after the Big Bang, they had to have been created and functioning perfectly, normally, consistently to one, a ratio of one to ten to the billionth power, in concerning time, that would be the equivalent. I think I said that wrong. Let me try to clear that up. That would be the the equivalent of saying, following the Big Bang, the explosion that created the Earth and the universe, there could not have been more. Uh, there could not have been more than one billionth of one tenth of, of one. Real quick one billionth of one second in order for a place to have been created to sustain human life. And all that's covered with God saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Water is made up of hydrogen, two hydrogen molecules and one oxygen molecule. H2O, we all know what water is. The two hydrogen molecules have to be attached, and they are attached, to the oxygen molecule in a V formation. And if that was not the case, then the properties of water would be changed. It would create a situation where water would freeze from the bottom up in our lakes and our rivers, which would destroy all the fish and all the living things in the water, in fresh water, lakes and rivers. But the fact that it's created in the manner that it is in the V formation, enables life to continue even after lakes and rivers and so forth start to freeze from the top down one of the things that always gets me about this stuff methane gas which is poisonous has a molecular weight of 16 ammonia gas which is poisonous has a molecular weight of 17 water vapor has a molecular weight of 18 now if those were different by just one small percentage or one small amount if any of those were different that would mean that methane and ammonia gas would poison our atmosphere by staying low to the earth but the difference in the 16 for the methane gas the 17 weight for the ammonia gas and the 18 weight for water vapor creates a a living environment for us the water vapor stays close to the earth to create an atmosphere where We can be sustained and we can breathe. And methane and ammonia gas make their way out into space. It's almost like God knew that this thing had to be just right. And God said to Abraham, I'm the almighty God. I'm the almighty God. There's a a verse of scripture over in uh, John chapter 14. Jesus is talking to his disciples. Let me read to you. What this says, when Jesus is having the last supper with his disciples, he says in verse 12, John fourteen twelve, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever you shall ask, call for or require, or make a demand on what that word ask means. Whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Brother Hagin used to tell a story about uh, an experience he had with P.C. Nelson. P.C. Nelson was a uh, prolific writer, brilliant person as far as language and so forth is concerned. He was recognized by uh, the government, not just Christian circles, but the government recognized that he was the foremost authority on the Greek and the Hebrew languages during his time. He did a lot of work during World War I for the government and translation and so forth, really made an impact on the uh, American contribution to the war effort, and he was uh, he was in a group of younger ministers uh, toward the last uh, the, well the, during the last year of his life. Brother Hagan was part of this group, and somebody asked him, How many languages do you know and he said i don 't know any yet and then they said, Well, how many can you read and write he said thirty two we 're talking about a brilliant person, and he said um, that he always did his devotional reading in the Greek New Testament. He understood the language very well, and so he would read that just like we would read English, I guess. And um, and he, he said, concerning the translation, primarily the King James translation, he said the translators always chose to use the strongest term that they could out of respect for God's power and God's ability. Now... You may remember that there are certain things in the Old Testament where it says, and God will smite man or God will make man sick or do certain things like that, according to the translation. But the Hebrew has a permissive tense of the verb that the translators seem to ignore. And he pointed that out. He made mention of that as well. But he said, out of respect to the translators, now, you got you got to... Uh, I admire their heart, their desire for the things of God, even if they did make a mistake in some of the things that they translated. At least they're trying to show that God is the almighty God. They were wrong in what they thought God would do. And so they missed some of it in the translation, putting uh, uh, translating certain things, certain verbs in the causative sense instead of the permissive. But uh, Brother Nelson said, in John chapter 14, he gave an example of this. He said, the, the statement, I will, or I shall, is the strongest thing you can make, the strongest assertion you can make in the English language. And so nearly every time they had an opportunity, they would translate whatever was being said, whatever the Holy Ghost was directed to be said or to be written, they would translate that in the in the strongest terms possible. So here in John chapter 14 and verse 13, where Jesus said, Whatsoever you call for or require in my name, whatever you put a demand on in my name, that will I do that the father may be glorified in the son he said literally in the Greek that means this whatever you call for or require in my name if I don't have it I'll make it for you now folks you remember over in Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus is talking to his disciples and he talks about how the fish the, the fowl of the air the birds in the air they don't have to work for their food but God takes care of them And flowers of the field that have a very short period of time when they're alive, how that God clothes them and arrays them with beauty like nobody else can see. He then concludes the verse by saying, If God takes care of the birds and he clothes the flowers, shall he not so much more? take care of you and me well where do we have problems with that seems to me that we have problems when, it, when we forget we're talking about the almighty God and again I think that's a function of looking at our own circumstances and looking at our own situations more than looking at God's ability and God's word but do you realize that you have a promise from the creator of the universe that he'll take care of you Do you realize that you have a promise from the creator of the universe that he'll never leave you nor forsake you? Do you realize that you have a promise from the God that cannot lie saying he'll take care of you? He'll see you through. That's the almighty God. Now, why does God want us to know that he's all powerful? The Bible says that God has subjected even his power to his word he's exalted his word above his name the psalmist says his name represents the power and his ability to do whatever he could do which is anything everything but he's given his power limits and those limits are dictated and determined by the words of his mouth in the beginning when god said let there be light The Bible tells us very specifically that God didn't use all of his power when he created the universe. So when he said light be. He's just calling into play whatever light, whatever power was necessary to create light. Whatever power was necessary to create the image that he had of himself. In creation. So when the angels say in Psalm two, Psalm 8 rather verse 2. When they start looking at God's plan to create man in his own image and for man to have dominion, it's easy to understand why they said, what is man that thou art mindful of him? The angels have not had any experience with this creature called man. Now, whatever was here before, whatever Adam, I'm sorry, whatever, Satan had uh, uh, dominion over here on the earth because the Bible says Lucifer was given a seed on the earth to have a great deal of control. We don't know if it was complete control. But a great deal of control. Whatever was here then. Wasn't man. Couldn't have been. He didn't remake man. After he recreated the earth. That's when he said in Genesis 126. Let us make man in our own image. After our own likeness and let them have dominion. The angels are flabbergasted. They're floored by this. They remember the rebellion. The rebellion. Of Satan and the third of the angels that fell and now God says I'm going to make something even with even a higher than even a higher class than Lucifer and I'm going to give him dominion and authority on the earth I'm going to make him like us and the angel says you're gonna do what I could imagine that they may be thinking knowing the history behind things that we just have glimpses of concerning Satan's rebellion with the third of the angels They're probably thinking, why would you ever want to give authority away ever again? First time didn't work out too well. But God ups the ante. He says, no, this new creature, this new creation that we're going to form is going to be like us. He's going to be in our image after our likeness. He's going to be an eternal being just like us. And the angels say, what is man that thou art mindful of him? The Bible says God made the the stars in the sky with his fingers. It literally says that the, the Hebrew language literally says that God flicked with his fingers the stars into existence. I bring that out only to point to what seems obvious to me. That's not the greatest display of your power when you're only using your fingers. God had plenty in reserve. He created the universe with plenty in reserve. One thing science can't figure out and one thing they don't know is why the earth doesn't decay. If the tilt of the earth was just one degree more or less, if it was one degree more, then it would create cold overnight uh, temperatures that man could not withstand. If it was one degree the other direction, We'd have thousand mile winds in heat that man couldn't endure. It's almost like God knew. And so the angels say, what is man that thou art mindful of him? The Bible tells us God made man with his hands. And then he breathed life into him and he became a living soul. And the angels are watching every bit of this saying, why in the world are you doing this? Because God wanted somebody in his class of being. And he created us for one and only one purpose that the Bible identifies. It's the only thing that I can find in all the scripture for why God created man the way that he did is Genesis 1, 6, where he said, and let him have dominion. We remember the things and read the miracles that God did for Moses when he was leading the children of Israel to the promised land. They came to a place where there was no water, God told Moses to go hit with his staff a certain rock and water poured forth from that rock, gushed forth from that rock in sufficient amounts to satisfy two to seven million people and all the animals they had with them. Next time around, when they're needing water, Moses was supposed to speak to the rock because that's a type of Jesus. The first time the rock was smitten or struck with a rod, that was to uh, illustrate Jesus on the cross. But the next time, there wasn't supposed to be any striking the rock. The rock was supposed to be spoken to by Moses, signifying how the blessings of God come following Jesus' death and resurrection. But Moses messed that up. He got mad at the people and hit the rock again. Water still came out. Now here's a question. Did God pick the rock that he knew there was water in? Or did God just say whichever rock you hit, there'll be sufficient water? What about when Joshua's the leader of the children of Israel? He comes to a place where he's fighting the enemy, enemies of Israel, but they're running out of daylight. So Joshua cries out to the Lord and says, God, let the sun and the moon stand still. Now, here's one that raises a lot of questions for me. What happened? How many physical laws of nature did God have to change to answer that prayer? Did the earth quit revolving? Did the earth quit spinning? Or did the whole universe just spin and revolve and rotate along with the earth? Bible says it went way up into the night. So the physical laws of nature. The interaction between gravity and rotation of the earth and revolving around the sun and whatever else is involved. The relationship between those things had to change in such a manner. In such a miraculous manner. For Joshua's prayer to be answered. But God didn't even break a sweat over that. Didn't even break a sweat. Time after time, the Bible talks about the children of Israel receiving help from the Lord and their enemies who outnumbered them in almost every case. Who were stronger than them in battle in almost every case. Those enemies would wind up fighting each other so that Israel didn't have anything to do except to carry away this stuff. God said, I am the almighty God. Walk before me with your whole heart. Turn with me over to uh, Psalm 91, please. Psalm 91, the last three verses of the chapter are things that the Lord spoke to my heart uh, well going on twenty years ago now, it was one of those things where um, well i don't know how to say it any other way than this the Holy Ghost just brought these verses to my remembrance I'd read them, but there were other scriptures in psalm ninety one that um, uh, that I was more familiar with than these, but the Lord spoke these to my heart and uh, and I know you I hope you've had the same experience where Things that you would see on your own are quickened to you by the Holy Ghost, whether you get a revelation of something about them or it's just the act of God speaking to your own heart. But any time that's happened, I've got, uh, I don't know, about a dozen of those times and uh, uh, the ways that those scriptures came, that those become favorite scriptures and ones that I always hold on to. And that's what happened with this. I was meditating um, well really Just had gotten quiet I'd spent some time praying And I'd just gotten quiet and all of a sudden the Holy Ghost Said Because he set his love upon me I will deliver him Well I had to look and find out where that was I knew I'd heard that But that's kind of generic If you know what I mean There may be a number of places where you could find that But there isn't There's one in Psalm 91 verse 14 So God said, because he set his love upon me, now maybe we ought to qualify this because I know the devil tries to beat you up about things just like he tries me and everybody else. You get a verse of scripture like this, because he set his love upon me, the devil will instantly say, well, that doesn't mean you. You don't qualify for that. And then he may remind you of something you've done wrong or something that you failed at or thought you failed at or whatever the case might be. But remember, Jesus said, He that loves me keeps my commandments. He keeps my word. He didn't say that the one that loves me is the one that never messes up. Folks, if we never messed up, we wouldn't need a Savior. But God knew we were such screw ups that we had to have a redemption that covered everything. And thank God we do. So if you love His word, you qualify. Because he set his love upon me, therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Think about all those things God said he'd do for you because you love him and put his word first. He delivers you. He sets you on high. When you call upon him, he answers you. He'll be with you in trouble. He is with you in trouble. In case you didn't get it the first time, he says, I will deliver him again. Then he says, and I will honor him. Folks, the honor of God is worth, well, it's not even to be compared with honor from the world. I think a lot of times we try to get the world to honor us. But the world will never honor those who don't compromise with it. The world will only honor those who will yield their principles concerning the word and accept what the world wants things to be. So he says, I will honor him. Then verse 16, he says, with long life, I will satisfy him. And show him my salvation. I want you to notice he didn't just say, with long life shall he live. He said, with long life you'll be satisfied. Well, I've got some things left to do to be satisfied. Don't you? I've got some things that still need to be changed for me to be satisfied. But I've got a promise, and so do you. From the creator of the universe, the God who cannot lie. And he said, Because we've set our love upon him. That's the criteria. Because we seek his name, the exaltation of his name, and not our own. He said, With long life I'll satisfy you, and I will show you my salvation. What does that mean? Well, I think it means answered prayer. I think it means the realization of what Jesus paid for for us. I think it means a lot of things along those lines. He will show us his salvation. He will show us his salvation. Now, I don't know what situation you're facing. I don't know what hardships you may be staring down. But you've got a promise from the creator of the universe with whom it is impossible to lie. He said he'd see you through. He said he'd set you on high. He said he'd be with you in trouble. He said he'd answer you he said with long life he would satisfy you and show you his salvation the extent the far reaching nature of everything that Jesus did for us just like Dr. Nelson said if you ask anything in my name and I don't have it I'll make it for you isn't that good I'll never forget that one First time Brother Hagin told that story that I was present for, that just stuck in my heart like a dagger. Not in a a bad way, but it's something I'll never let go of. Whatever you call for, ask in my name. If I don't have it, I'll make it for you. That's the God who set his love upon you. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for your miracle working power things that are commonplace and taking place all around us, this earth, this place that you gave us authority over, is a miracle in itself. And you are the almighty God. The God that's more than enough. Every miracle you performed in both the Old Testament and New Testament, there was never a shortage of power. There was always extra. And Jesus showed us your nature, Father, when he was here on the earth. When he fed the 5,000 with the little boy's lunch. Your word says there were 12 basketfuls left over. Because you're the God that's more than enough. Your hand is never shortened. It's always sufficient in power. I thank you, Father, for the reality of that in my life and the lives of this congregation. We have a promise. We have a guarantee from you, the creator of the universe. So we thank you, Father, that because we have set our love upon you, you deliver us. Because we've known your name, you set us on high. When we call upon you, you answer us you are with us in trouble you deliver us and you honor us we say that with long life we shall be satisfied and we will see your salvation in Jesus name in Jesus name in Jesus name amen that word honor you said I'll deliver him and I'll honor him The word honor literally means to weigh down with blessings. So when he says the second time I will deliver him and I will honor him. He's talking about being weighed down with blessings. The picture for that is Israel coming out of Egypt with everything they owned. The picture of that is the spoiling of our enemies. Now why would God care if they had silver and gold and stuff in the wilderness? the most important part of the reason for him providing that for them is to give them money to give to the sanctuary because that's what they did with it. When the tabernacle was built on their journey, what they used to provide for Moses and those that were constructing the thing, the materials, was the silver and gold that they brought out of Egypt but even that there was more than enough Moses came to the place where he had to tell people don't bring any more wouldn't it be great Sunday morning one Sunday morning just say folks this is normally where we take up an offering but we've got too much so we're not going to have one today that's how God is that's how he was for them I have to believe that's how it will be for us too. Amen. Let's all stand. Let's lift our hands and thank God for his goodness. Father, we worship you because you are the God that's more than enough. We magnify your holy name because you are the almighty God. We thank you, Lord, for the specific detail. Of this planet that we have authority over. We thank you, Father, that our words change things in this life and in this place. We thank you that our words change things in our bodies in Jesus' name. And we thank you, Father, that our words change things in our surroundings, our finances, and every other area. For we are made in your image after your likeness and we've been given authority in this earth Father we count on all of heaven backing us up when we speak for you are the almighty God we love you Father we worship you we thank you that your word is true in Jesus name Amen Amen Well, thanks for being with us. God's good, isn't he? Amen. You're dismissed.